0: Welcome to the Opening the Door podcast, a series that uses storytelling to help trainees and mentors understand the impact of bias and discrimination in the training environment and how to mitigate it. I'm your host, Krista Hoffman-Longton, Assistant Professor of Communication Studies at IUPUI. Today we have a guest with us, Dr. Tamara Davis, who will be telling her story and her experience around mentoring and equity and diversity. Dr. Davis, thank you for being with us today.
1: It's a pleasure. Thank you.
0: So as you may know, we start most of our podcast by asking our guests to tell a little story about their background and maybe a time that you have experienced bias or a microaggression in your career and how the folks around you have supported you. So by way of context, can you tell us a little bit more about what you do and then maybe share that story with us?
1: Sure. So I'm currently a dean of the School of Social Work here at Indiana University and a professor and I didn't come by this profession in a straight and narrow way. It took a lot of roundabouts for me to get here. And so what I'd like to share with you is a bit of a story relative to being a young girl for starting out in the workforce and some of the twists and turns that ultimately led to my PhD work and the mentoring that I received as a PhD student.
0: That's wonderful. Take us back then. You said you wanted to kind of start before you even started your training. Tell me more about sort of your experiences growing up.
1: Yes. So as a young girl, just turning 16, I was anxious to get into the workforce. And I did. I went to work for a retail store initially. And following that, I went to work in a pizza place. And in both of those places of employment, I experienced not just bias, but blatant offensive and discriminatory language. In my very first job, I was put on a switchboard to be a switchboard operator. And one day, the manager of the store walked in while I was sitting at the switchboard working, and I had freckles as a young girl. And he asked me, how far down did my freckles go? I had freckles on my chest. And this was my first job. How far down did my freckles go? That he would like to know that. He would like to find that out. Then in my second job, I uh, was always a fairly well-endowed young woman as was another young woman who was working at the pizza place and the manager in the pizza place used to often make reference to bobsy boobsy twins who would be working together in the pizza parlor in the evening and waitressing and was always happy when the two of us were working together and And so this was my first experience as a girl going into the workforce, being objectified and not having a whole lot of of control or really knowledge. I was a fairly, I would say, naive young girl and not quite knowing what to do with all of that. So that's how I walked into the workforce. And that's what framed my reference in in terms of how I was going to walk through the world of working as a girl and, and ultimately as a woman.
0: That's so powerful to hear those stories. I appreciate you sharing them. And I think that many folks, including myself, can identify with those experiences in the service industry. As a young person, that is often your first job. And I think that the kinds of experiences that you alluded to there are all too common even today. And I think you're right to say that many of us don't have the tools that we need to navigate that in a way that does get us some of that power back.
1: Yes, Yes, absolutely.
0: So in those scenarios, it sounds like you just sort of toughed it out. Did you do anything in those contexts or did you have anyone who could help you?
1: I did not do anything. I didn't even feel like I had anyone that I could tell about those experiences who would be able to guide me and know how to handle those situations. I stayed in neither one of those jobs for terribly long, but it was enough to have colored the way that I looked through the world as a young girl.
0: That's a really important point or phrase, the way that you approach that, the idea of sort of coloring the world, right? That these experiences really do become a lens through which we see our interactions with others. Absolutely. So fast forward for me, you've left your service industry jobs and you're now pursuing a PhD in social work. I'd love to hear more about your training experience and how you kind of manage some of the challenges there.
1: Yes. So Let me first say that I received probably my first real sense of mentoring as a master's in social work student and had a woman as a a faculty member who saw something in me that I hadn't seen in myself. And she decided that I wasn't only going to be a social worker, that one day I should go study and get my Ph.D., so after I was out working as a social worker for a couple of years, I get a phone call from her out of the clear blue, just saying, I have not received your GRE scores yet. And my response was, well, what do you mean? Why would I, why would I take the GRE? And she said, because you need to go get a PhD. You need to be out there teaching. You need to be working with other students. Ultimately, I took the GRE and I went to get my PhD and it was really, I was working as a doctoral student, as a research assistant and going through the PhD program. And I chose the school I went to because my area of interest was child welfare, interestingly enough. And I, my, some of my practice work as a social worker had been in child welfare and working with kids in counseling situations. And so I chose to go to a program where one of the faculty members really was focused on his research in child welfare and improving the services to children and families. So I began working with him. And he was coincidentally also teaching the pedagogy class for future academics. So... I was just beginning at that point in my life to identify who I really was as a woman. And I had become aware of my identity as a lesbian. And so as I was beginning my PhD program, I was exploring how out I can be as a PhD student in a very conservative state. So I kind of began asking around ab- about you know, how students were accepted and, and were there other faculty who identified as LGBTQ and came, up, you know, came upon this class where we had to teach a class. We had to put together a syllabus, a whole class session, and we had to put the readings together and we had to bring it alive for class. We actually had to teach this class to our, our fellow PhD students. And so I went to my instructor, my professor, who I was also working with and explored with him the option and perhaps safety, if you will, of doing a class session on LGBTQ specific to lesbian families and teaching the students about what it would be like to work with a family that was a a two women family with children and perhaps explore bringing something new, because that wasn't in the curriculum anywhere. And he he was very supportive of it. He said, you, you know the risk you know, you're taking, basically, and supported me in doing that. And I have to tell you, that was one of the scariest things that I did in my entire PhD program, because it was, in many ways, my coming out to the whole academic community. And once you're out, you can't come back in. And academia has not always been a safe place. And I would say, still, in large part, isn't a safe place for people who identify as part of the LGBTQ populations. So I thought, okay, well, I'm in social work, you know, Uh, if there's, going to be a place for this to happen. It's going to be social work because our values of the profession are very much steeped in understanding and embracing culture and difference. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to go for it. And I did. And I still remain very scared. Even after I did that, there were tears that came to my eyes during this talk. And as I'm speaking now, kind of remembering that. However, the faculty member handled that with such ease. And my classmates were quietly supportive. They didn't know how to respond because they could see that this was clearly information they knew nothing about. They could see that they, they all know what they would have done had they come across a lesbian family in their own work. So much that they learned that they didn't know, but also they recognized that this was a moment for me um, as an individual, and that it was a risk I was taking as a student in this program and still wanting to get my PhD. So it was, I think, a moment of my peers learning a little bit about how to create safety and environments in a classroom for one another and for their own students. But it was also an opportunity for my faculty member to see the needs of a student that perhaps hadn't come across his his line in, in the past.
0: Thank you for sharing that story. It sounds like it was a really powerful moment in your career. What did that faculty member do specifically? Do you remember some of the things that he said to you that made you feel like this was the right space to sort of share that experience and share the need for this kind of work?
1: So I don't know that I would remember exactly things that he said. You know, there's this Saying out there that people don't always remember what you say, but they remember how you make them feel. So I would say that absolutely was the case with him. He understood this was important to me as an individual, but he was also understanding that this is important in our profession that people understand we're working with all different kinds of families. Our research is going to be with all different kinds of families. And what I remember is him being affirming. What I remember is him listening and just saying, Basically, you don't have to worry about a grade. You don't have to worry about me as your faculty member holding anything against you or holding whatever, you know, perceptions I have relative to what this is going to mean for you in terms of your progression. But more than that, it was him as a human being and being very much a compassionate social worker himself with a lot of years of practice experience and knowing how to handle this situation in a way that lifted me up instead of either freezing me or denying me the opportunity to both grow as an individual, but also as a future teacher.
0: One of the things that you said there is something I wanted to just kind of zero in on for a minute. It sounds like he also sort of acknowledged the emotions of the situation, that this wasn't just an academic endeavor for you. This wasn't just another research topic. Can you talk about how that acknowledgement maybe helped you to be able to traverse the subject, helped you to feel safe?
1: Absolutely. I think if I had thought for a moment that my faculty member was just sort of letting me go through this as an exercise that had had no intention of letting it be meaningful to not only me, but to other people, I don't know that I could have gone through with it if I felt like he, he wasn't being genuine with me about the kind of support he was willing to offer and the space he was willing to give me in that classroom to let that whole session be mine and to handle it the way that I felt like I needed to handle it. It actually, if I might say, led to me going to him once I finished my coursework and asking him if he would chair my dissertation. And I went to him because... I learned at one point about his own faith background, and that particular faith didn't have strong support for people who identified as the LGBTQ spectrum types of folks. And I remember walking into his office, and he asked me to sit down, and and so I told him what I wanted to talk to him about, and I just basically blurted out to him. Okay. I know what your faith background is. You know, my identity, is this going to be a problem? Are we going to be able to work together or do I need to find somebody else to work with? I just put it out there. And he just looked at me and he just smiled and thanked me in the moment for just being direct and asking him the question. And he immediately affirmed me again and said, that may be my fate. That doesn't mean that's how I personally approach life or how I personally believe. So from that moment on, he, he actually became the best mentor I could have ever asked for in, in a lifelong firm.
0: That's wonderful too, to hear about that sense of authenticity that came to that relationship, that it was about sort of both of you being present with one another, kind of saying, I see you and I'm here to support you. That's a really, really powerful moment. Yes. So thinking back to your experience as a graduate student, if you now had the opportunity to kind of give your past self some advice about how to traverse those kinds of experiences, what kind of advice would you give? I
1: think I would give advice to not speaking to women right now and whether you identify as a cis woman or whether you identify as lesbian, bisexual, whatever. What I would say first and foremost is Find a woman that you're comfortable with who can provide you with some mentoring, who is comfortable in her own skin as a woman and can help you to navigate some of the challenges of being in what is still primarily a male-dominated environment in terms of academia because you're going to need somebody at some point. And then I would say for women who identify as Part of the LGBTQ populations to know that there are other people out there who have had to go through a lot of the trials and tribulations and trying to figure out the whens and the whats as you go along the way and find someone who is out and open and willing to talk with you and don't hesitate to ask them if they can give you some some of your time because. We are willing to do that. And, you know, I had a, a friend who basically told me when I was going through my Ph.D. program, who was an out lesbian, basically said, you have to be out once you you just have to be because there are too many other people who need us to be out and available. And so what I would say is find people who are willing to listen and affirm you and know that there are going to be a lot of challenging times because not every, even, even in social work, there are still people who have that bias and discriminate and have that kind of prejudice. Even when we're a profession, that's not supposed to be bringing that to the table. It's there. And in the larger environment of academia, there isn't any doubt that it's there. Every conversation that you have is going to to be with people who have children and families, or you're going to events, you're going to uh, different functions where they get into conversations and you don't find your space in those conversations. So seek out other people who can identify with you and, and find an ear that you can trust.
0: I think that that notion of finding any ear that you can trust is so important, particularly because some of these issues, as you said, are not easily resolved, right? They're not easily resolved in the academy. And so finding those individuals within the system who can support you, who can give you that safe space to have the conversations you need to have and be able to develop that professional identity to some extent while your personal identity may be forming or changing as we all do. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Tamara Davis. I really enjoyed having this opportunity to hear about story and i can't say how valuable it is to have all of our listeners have the opportunity to hear from you so thank you so much for having me opening the door is a podcast series that uses storytelling to help trainees and mentors understand the impact of bias and discrimination in the training environment and how to mitigate it i'm your host krista hoffman longton please join us for our next episode